You can turn to the book of Ruth in your Bible, your Old Testament. We'll hear the opening verses read and then look at the rest of the chapter. The book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Here is the word of the Lord. Well, in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, her opening line is this. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And I know some some of you single men who are not in possession of a great fortune are discouraged by that statement, but (laughs) in the storyline of Pride and Prejudice, the man in possession of a great fortune, Mr. Darcy, kind of most famously, is in want of a wife. And so as the story progresses, he, Elizabeth Bennett catches his eye, and um, it wouldn't be a Jane Austen story unless a lot of things had to happen between the first meeting of that couple and the final marriage, which is always at the very end of the story. Sorry to ruin it for you, but that's how they all go. But it's, it's how it all progresses. You know, it's, a, it's a basically it's a boy meets girl, girl falls in love with boy, boy falls in love with girl, they get married. That's the basic storyline of all Jane Austen books. But it's how it unfolds where all the magic is and all the insights into human nature is. And that's, what, and that's true for Ruth as well. So the storyline is pretty simple. You know, it's, a, it's a boy meets girl story and the boy marries girl story. But how it unfolds is where all the drama and insight is in the story. It's a great love story, but it's so much more. You know, it's, there's a reason, and the more you study it, the more you realize why this is, uh, why is, why this is considered an inspired uh, book in our Bibles, why it belongs solidly in our Bibles. So it's actually the eighth book in the Bible. So you have the five books of Moses, you know, that take, takes you from the, the creation in six days to on the, on the edge of the land of Canaan, the promised land. That's the first five books. And then you get Joshua. So they cross the Jordan River, and then they're in the promised land, and they conquer it. And then you get Judges where they're occupying the promised land, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad time. So you get these figures that rise up, these heroes that rise up, but basically the picture is this is not a people doing well, not faithful to the Lord. And then you get Ruth, the eighth book, which occurs during the time of Judges, so there's a reason why it's placed where it is. And she stands out in, in total um, contrast to the world around her, the moral confusion 
and darkness around her. And so we'll see that as we work through this book. The way you want to read Ruth is making sure you pick up the first sentence and the last sentence of the book. The first sentence of the book, we heard it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. That's the opening sentence. So we'll unpack the significance of a lot of those things in just a few, mo- few minutes. And then the last sentence, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, kind of the main hero of our book, Boaz fathered Obed, so uh, Ruth and Boaz are going to have a son, Obed, Obed is going to father Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So the last word of the book of Ruth is David, the, the, Israel's greatest king. And then you turn to 1 Samuel, next in our Old Testament, and you get the rising up of, of King David. So Ruth is there as, as this uh, bridge between judges and King David. And of course, King David is so important to us because we refer to Jesus as the son of David. He's the greater Davidic king, the promised messianic Davidic king. And so the book of Ruth has all these theological connections to our Bibles, So we read it as, you know, taking place in the time of Judges, we read it as an example of how to live. What does it look like to live a noble life? A life especially uh, of hesed. And we'll we'll unpack that word uh, later this morning. Hesed, kindness. It's It's a great Old Testament Hebrew word. What does it look like to live a life of hesed? Toward others and then toward the Lord. And then secondly, we want to read this book with an awareness that. King David looms in the shadows of this whole book. So in some ways, it it makes sense to see that what Ruth is doing, the book of Ruth, is explaining perhaps a couple things. One is, where does David come from? Israel's greatest king, where does he come from? What's his his family background? Well, this is detail about the family background of Ruth, uh, sorry, of King David. Another way to think of of that topic is, Maybe someone had heard about Ruth the Moabitess. In David's lineage or in his, in his family background is Ruth the Moabitess, and maybe that's upsetting to certain people. But, when, but once you get to the end of the book of Ruth, you realize she is tremendous. She is a tremendous woman. How fitting it is that a woman like this would be in the background of King David, Israel's greatest king. So in, in a sense, it's a, it's a defense of uh, the family background of King David. So I think that's, Keeping those things in mind explains a lot of why is there so much attention paid to this relatively simple story of God's gracious provision for this family, this relatively obscure family. Well, you realize they're not so obscure after all. So overarching theme for our series, we're going to do four weeks in the book of Ruth, one one, uh, sermon per chapter. Most books don't have chapter breaks at the right places, but it seems like in the book of Ruth, as you work through it, the chapter breaks are actually very helpful places. So one sermon per chapter. Uh, Chip Henderson is going to take chapter two next week, so you can anticipate that. <clears throat> you can be praying for him because I'm sure he's, he'll be nervous about that, but he'll have, he'll have chapter two next week. Um, but the overarching theme is God's unexpected kindness or the unexpected kindness of God. And we're going to see the unexpected kindness, God to us and then people to other, other people and then people to God in all of these 
uh, various directions and dimensions. It's unexpected kindness. That's a great theme of this book, and so we want to tap into that. So this morning, we're going to think about God's kindness, God's unexpected kindness. So point one, disciplined by God's kindness. Point two, converted to God's kindness. And then point three, trusting in God's future kindness. Disciplined by God's kindness, converted to God's kindness, trusting in God's future kindness. We'll see those in chapter one of Ruth. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we glean from this book. Lord, we see in some ways an echo of Katrina's prophecy, Lord, that you do care about the personal, individual details of our lives. We're not lost to you. You know all things in our lives, and you are concerned with all things in our lives. And so we can bring all things in our lives to you in prayer, and you meet us there. So Father, we pray that you would do that this morning. And for those who uh, are anticipating coming up for ministry later in the service, who uh, feel something in their past that is uh, maybe they just can't get past, Lord, we pray that you would minister to them. We pray that even this book, this passage, would help them to realize that there is reason to trust that you will do work today and in the future. You will do good work and enable them to experience fresh grace in this area. So Lord, prepare them for that time of ministry. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Point one, disciplined by God's kindness. Disciplined by God's kindness. So we're gonna here, we're gonna look at the first five verses, the verses we just, we just read. Let me, let me read verse one again, just so it's fresh. So there was a certain man of, sorry, that's, uh, that would be 1 Samuel chapter one. Ruth chapter one, however, says this. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the more you kind of just let yourself stop and look at these words, the more you realize this is a bad look. This is a bad look for Israel. So first of all, there's just a, a chronological statement. So in the days when the judges ruled. So that's when this story takes place. So the book of Judges, you know, is the book previous. And so in the middle of the events recorded there, or at least during that era of the Judges, is when the book of Ruth takes place. And what you learn uh, about the book of Judges as you look at that book is that it was a morally bleak time. It was not a, it was not a time of triumph and success uh, and heroism in the, time, in, in, the, in the nation of Israel. So for those couple of centuries, when the judges are ruling, uh, you get the depiction in the last verse, you know, if your Bible's open, you can look at the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Horrible situation. Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. Not looking to the Lord to determine right and wrong, but looking to themselves to determine right and wrong. So obviously, it feels somewhat familiar to our day, doesn't it? So that's the time in which the book of Ruth takes place. And then you see that there's a famine in the land. Now, at other times in history, a famine would not be necessarily a spiritually important event. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a test to all people uh, experiencing the famine, for sure. But at this time, a famine meant they were being disciplined by the Lord. This was an act of God 
on his people for a spiritual reason. Now we can say that confidently because we have, we have the books of Moses right before this. So in just one, uh, some verses from Leviticus 26, it explains why a famine is a big deal. So in Leviticus 26, this is, a, this is the blessings and curses chapter of Leviticus. So if you, if you follow me, I will bless you. If you don't follow me, I will bring curses. And in the midst of the curses, the Lord says this, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength will be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. That's the discipline of God. So when, when Israel is experiencing those things, it's the Lord saying, you need to get right with me. You need to repent. You need to turn back to me. And so a famine in the land was a big deal. Not just a big deal at a practical level, how to get food. It's a big deal at a spiritual level. God was saying something, that this was, this was a dark time. And then you get this man of Bethlehem. He's not named yet. <clears throat> so he goes from Bethlehem, this spiritually significant village in, in our Old Testament. So he goes from Bethlehem <clears throat> to Moab. Now Moab is not a... It's, it's, it's never the right answer to the question, I'll say that. It's never the right answer to your problem. You know, if you're struggling, how are we going to do this, how are we going to do that, the answer can never be Moab. So Moab, Moab is about 75 miles away. So you, you go up north to Jerusalem if you're in Bethlehem, and then you cut, cut east uh, to get over the Dead Sea, and then you cut south to get to Moab. 75 miles away, I was looking for different ways to capture that, but it's actually the distance from church to the John Paul Taylors. So it's, that's how, and that's not a joke, that's actually literally how far it is to their house. So that's how far it is from Bethlehem to Moab. And of course they're not going in a car 70 miles an hour to get to Moab, right? So that's, that's where it is geographically. Moab gets its, gets its start because the daughters of Lot, you know, the incestuous children of uh, Lot, uh, one, of, one of the daughters gave birth to a son, they named him Moab. And so he was the father of the Moabites. And they did not worship God. They did not worship the true God. They worshiped the God uh, Chemosh. And they explicitly are forbidden because they wouldn't help Israel during the Exodus, because they wouldn't help Israel. They're explicitly forbidden from the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23. So there's a lot of negative connotations when, it, when you see Moab. So this is not a good thing. So the people experiencing the discipline of God in Bethlehem leave there and go to Moab. Again, dark time. And then you get to this curiosity, Elimelech, his name. It means my God is king. His name means my God is king and he lives in Bethlehem, which is, which is house of bread. So the guy whose name means my God is king, who's living in the village called house of bread, leaves there to go to Moab. This is a bad thing again. This is a bad thing, a dark time. So that captures, in some ways, that captures the spiritual tragedy of the book of Ruth, kind of the, or at least the context. The context is this spiritual tragedy. And then you get to the personal tragedy. Now, there's no sense, um, there's, there's, there's really no sense that Naomi is, is being personally disciplined, and that's why her, her husband dies and her children die. That you, you get no sense of that. 
but certainly it's a personal tragedy, right? So she, she leaves, in, in her mind, she leaves a full woman in the, in the sense she has a husband and she has these two sons. And so in the ancient world, that meant her future is provided for. You know, she, she'll have status and she'll have provision in her future. But while she's there, her husband dies, her sons who, who grow up and they marry, Moabite women, somewhat of a concern to us, but they then die. And so there she is, a widow. Now, a widow isn't a shameful thing, but it is a desperate thing in the ancient world. And so that's the personal tragedy there. So you have the, the spiritual discipline in the famine, and then you have the personal tragedy there with what, what Naomi has experienced. And so again, her, her, there's, there's nothing shameful about this, but her life has suddenly become way more complicated. So, being, uh, so figuring out how she's going to provide for herself is suddenly a very big deal. She doesn't know how it's going to happen. And so what's the lesson here in this disciplined by God's kindness? Well, I think the famine, the famine does have a lesson for us. And that is that God's word is true. So God threatens that he will bring a famine if they don't get their, uh, if they turn away from him. And then he does it. He brings the famine. God's word is true. The warnings are true. Just like we cling to the promises because we know that they're true, we also want to remember that the threats and the warnings and the, and the acts of discipline by the Lord are also true. And so we want to hear that. God's word is true. But we also want to recall, even in that discipline, even in that discipline, it's his kindness. It's his kindness. It's him drawing us back. It's not him pushing us away. It's him drawing us back, ultimately. I mean, in some ways, it's pushing us away in a felt way so that we will turn back. It's a discipline that is a sign of his kindness. We see this really clearly in Hebrews 12. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He is a loving, faithful father, and so he brings discipline to the children that he loves. He's not a negligent father who would not discipline the, ch- the children that are his. He's a loving, faithful father who does discipline, and perfectly. It's never too harsh. It's never too light. It's always just right for what we need. So that's the first thing, disciplined by God's kindness. Second point, converted to God's kindness. I'll pick up at verse 6. I'll read through verse 14. So then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to, turn, to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the Lord. Sorry. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and, bear, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is ex- exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So there's a great emphasis in these verses on this idea of returning, turning. So it just kind of out of nowhere says, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. Now you realize that she heard good news. There's good news because there's provision back in Bethlehem where we're from. The Lord has provided for our people, so let's return. But then the author of Ruth just keeps going uh, back to this verb, turn, return, turn, return, so 12 times, 12 times in 17 verses, he uses the same verb, which is noteworthy. You're supposed to see that and say, okay, he's, he's saying something to me. <clears throat> and I think what he's saying is this, that the, the returning is not just a physical returning to where they're from, the land where they're from. It's also a spiritual returning to their God, to the Lord. It's a physical returning that is in some ways a picture of a spiritual returning. And then, you know, that, that kind of tentative thought gets confirmed. As the story plays out, you realize that's exactly what's going on here. They're returning to the Lord in a, in a great, tremendous way. So there's the returning aspect, which in some ways is capturing repentance because that verb uh, for turn or return, shuv uh, in the Hebrew, that's the key verb for repentance. When, somebody, when an author in the Old Testament wants to describe somebody repenting, they use that verb, that same verb. And then you get to the blessing that Naomi prays over her daughters-in-law. So she says in verse eight, go return each of you to her, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you or do hesed, do kindness with you. Do hesed with you. And the reason she says that, that she wants the Lord to do that is because you have dealt with the dead, uh, because in that same way, you have dealt with the dead and with me. In other words, Naomi has observed in Ruth and Orpah this great hesed, and so then she prays that the Lord would give hesed to these two women. Hesed is, it's, it's the organizing theology of this book. It's the organizing theme of this book, God to us and us to one another. And so she's praying that God would be the source of fresh hesed in their lives. And when you see this, this term in the Old Testament translated, most of the time in the ESV it's translated as steadfast love. Older translations would use loving kindness. Most of the time it's that. Sometimes it's just translated kindness, sometimes it's just mercy. It's used hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament because it captures so much of God's treatment of, of us, of his blessings of us. And it's also evident that, that it's not just a vertical thing, God to us or us to God. It's also how we're supposed to treat other people. We treat them with hesed, kindness. Daniel Block, in his commentary on Ruth, uh, defines hesed. And he says, here we are introduced to the key theological term in the book and one of Yahweh's, the Lord's, most treasured characteristics, hesed. Hesed is one of those Hebrew words whose meaning cannot be captured in one English word, 
This is a strong relational term that wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts. All the positive attributes of God, love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. In short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. It's a powerful word, powerful term. So it's, it's this, this sacrificial goodness, this commitment to bless and, and, and see another person prosper. And, and also with that willingness to sacrifice to, make, to see it happen. So it's not, it's, not just a, it's not just a contractual uh, quid pro quo kind of situation where I do it for you, you do it for me. I, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's not what's going on with hesed. It's, there's something unexpected, undeserved about hesed, sacrificial. It's like, like Daniel Block says, it's all those terms, love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, all those things wrapped together in this great word, hesed. And most importantly, just as Naomi prays, most importantly, it's the Lord's kindness to us. There is no hope for us to be kind to other people unless we have received the kindness of God in that dramatic fashion. You know, we, just as First John says, we love because he first loved us. We do hesed to others because he first did hesed to us. So that's her prayer for these daughters-in-law. It's, even praying it is, is, is really an expression by Naomi of, of Hesed, isn't it? That she, she, she wants the Lord himself to rain down blessing and kindness on these two women that she loves. So then they have this conversation. So it's a back and forth and Naomi's really trying to talk, them in, talk these women into staying in Moab because she thinks their futures will be better if they stay in Moab. She's not, she's, uh, she's, it's, it's, not it's not an active selfishness or meanness, you know, get away from me, I don't want anything to do with you. It's really just her thinking very practically, if I bring you to, to, back to Israel, it's not gonna go well with you. You should stay among your people. So Orpah hears Naomi and, and she thinks, okay, I am gonna stay. And there's no sense where there's any criticism on Orpah for staying. But it's very clear that Ruth is set apart in a special way because Ruth clung to her. At the end of 14, Ruth clung to her. So Naomi, we'll try one more time. So now it's Ruth. You have to listen to me. This is, this is gonna be hard. So she says in verse 15, see your sister-in-law has gone back to, to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And then Ruth speaks one of the great verbal affirmations of conversion. It's really a profession of faith. It's one of the great words in all the Bible. So she says, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. And then here's the, cl- the clincher. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, there will I be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's a very powerful word. And our, our, our first reflex might be to see that and say, well, yeah, of course she would say that. But as you read the book of Ruth, you realize, no, she meant it. This was, this was a profession of faith, and then the rest of the book of Ruth is gonna convey that faith in vivid ways. There's a little tip-off that, that, 
this is a profession of faith in 17 because she doesn't just use, use a generic word for God like Elohim. She uses Yahweh, the Lord. That's why it's capitalized, L-O-R-D in verse 17. May the Lord do so to me and more so if anything but death separates us. It's a great expression of faith. And so when you take the returning of Naomi and then the hesed uh, idea and then the conversion statement or the profession of faith of Ruth, what you get in, in those verses is just a very powerful picture of what conversion is. What does it mean to be a convert to Christ? Well, it involves hesed, you are a recipient of the kindness of God and that same kindness you express to others. It's a call to hesed. It's a, it's a first receiving of God's hesed, but then it's also a call to express that to other people. That's the first thing we want to say. And then the second thing is, it involves repentance. You're turning away from something and turning to something. You're turning away from your Moab and you're turning to God and his people. It's a It's a repentance. It's you saying, I will no longer search for the answer in Moab. I will now search for the answer in the Lord in this people. <clears throat> and then the third thing related to it, repentance, uh, the third thing is this, it's a new allegiance. What does it mean to be a convert to Christ? It means you have a new total allegiance. It doesn't just find, define what you do Monday through Friday. It doesn't just define what you do on Sunday mornings. It doesn't just define what you do with, with your money. It defines everything. It's a total allegiance. It's a new allegiance. Your God will be my God. Your people shall be my people. Because it is a dual allegiance, isn't it? First and foremost, it's an allegiance to God and God alone. But it is also, in being an allegiance to God, it's also an allegiance to God's people. You know, the, the option of, you know what, I'm just going to follow God and forget God's people, that option actually isn't open to us. Take the whole package. It's, it's an allegiance to God and to his people. That's what conversion is. It's a very p- powerful picture of conversion. So we're converted to God's kindness. That's the second thing. Third thing in, these, in, these, in this opening chapter is it's, we want to see that the, the trusting in God's future kindness, trusting in God's future kindness. So in verse 19, you get this homecoming. So the two of them, uh, Ruth and Naomi now, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And then Naomi interprets her life for them. Now she's already done this once in verse 13. Talking to just Ruth and Orba at this point, she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So that's how she's interpreted her, her life already. But when you get to verse 20 and 21, she interprets her life in a, in a much more categorical, darker way. So she makes three statements, which are all, are all basically the same thing. But in verse 20 and 21, she says to the townspeople, you know, is this Naomi? And so her response is this. Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. 
Do not call me pleasant, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, the name change is significant. I think the name change is a tip-off that, that Naomi is assuming that this, this new name, Mara, bitter, that captures not just her past, but it captures her whole life. In other words, just as my past has been bitter, so my future will be bitter. I need not expect anything else in my life. Bitter leading to bitter leading to bitter. And then, the, and then she adds to that this notion of I was full and now I'm empty. Again, it's, it's a categorical statement. I just am empty. It's not like I'm empty and I'm hoping for more in the future. It's just that I am empty. Stop. Again, bleak statement. And then it's made even bleaker by the fact that she assumes and repeats it several times. This is the Lord's fault. My life is bleak and I am bitter. I am empty and it's all the Lord's fault. So they're, they're troubling statements. You know, you're, you know uh, to this point, maybe you're, you're trying to give Naomi the benefit of the doubt and now it's, it's really uncertain. Is this positive example, negative example? Her faith is confusing. But the theology of her statements, we don't want to miss. You know, she's clearly looking at Yahweh, the true Lord, calling him the Almighty, El Shaddai. Doesn't doubt his power, but she does doubt his goodness. She doubts his intentions for her. She's doubting those profoundly. So, no question who the Lord is in her mind, but serious questions about his goodness. So, two things we want to we want to say about Naomi's words. One, we are absolutely sympathetic to her. I mean, she has experienced true tragedy. As tragic as these events would be in in any day, you know, the present day or any day, at that time they would be in some ways even more tragic because she would be even more desperate as a result of what she's experienced. So we are very sympathetic. This is a personal, emotional, uh, relational tragedy that is just profound. So there's grief, grief attached to it, hardship attached to it. Her relative simplicity is now replaced with complexity. So that's the first thing. We're very sympathetic to what she says. But the second thing we don't want to miss is that she simply isn't seeing through eyes of faith. There's more going on. She doesn't see it through eyes of faith. She's not in some ways it seems obvious, but just, we, just need to, we just recognize it, that she's not seeing everything. She's only seeing part of the picture. Now, she's, she's certainly true, right that God's sovereignty is kind of the overarching cause of, of, of the things that she's experiencing, but she hasn't gone deeper than that to think through some of the details of God's involvement. For instance, it's, it's not just a, an arbitrary act of anger that the Lord brought the famine. God was doing something among his people. He was trying to bring them along, bring them to repentance. It was a loving act. She doesn't miss, it was kind of a big deal for that they left Bethlehem and went to Moab. Naomi has no real insight about that, that that was a big deal. Even if it wasn't her choice, there's no hint that, that, that she gets it. That, that was kind of a big deal for her to do that. But probably the biggest thing 
that we want to camp on for just a, just a minute here, the biggest thing that she misses is that what's true of her past isn't necessarily true of her future. She is defining her whole life based on her past. She's defining her whole life based on her past. And faith, faith sees things in the future. It sees opportunities in the future. It sees future grace. You, maybe you know that title from John Piper's book, Future Grace. And so when he, when he talks about faith, he really highlights that aspect that faith is faith in future grace. You know, faith is a, is a recognition of things that exist right now that we can't see. That's true. But faith is also this forward-looking, forward-leaning thing. It's, it's, it trusts in future grace. So he writes um, early in the book, faith as, has a profound and pervasive future orientation To be sure, faith can look back and believe a truth about the past, like the truth that Christ died for our sins. It can look out and trust a person, like the personal receiving of Jesus Christ. And it can look forward and be assured about a promise, like like I will be with you to the end of the age. Jesus says in John 6.35, whoever comes to me, present, shall not hunger, future. And whoever believes in me, present, shall never thirst, future. Thus, when faith looks out and embraces Christ in the present, it also embraces his never-ending all-sufficiency. This is why I say that faith is profoundly and pervasively future-oriented. There is no saving act of faith, whether looking back to history, out to a person, or forward to a promise that does not include a future orientation. Naomi lacks that. She doesn't have that future orientation. She vividly sees and and feels her past, but misses what God is going to do and could do in the future. She needs a more complete faith, one that looks ahead. I mean, Ruth, Ruth pictures what is true in every one of our lives, which is that God is always doing more than we can see. He is always doing more than we can see. There are good things he's preparing for us we simply cannot see now. Some of those things are gonna take an hour and a half to fulfill. And some of those things are gonna take 35 years to fulfill in your life. But he is up to something. He's up to something good in your life. Ruth just conveys that in such a, a, a powerful, powerful way. I mean, there's a little, there's a, just a, a great little foreshadowing at the end of the chapter one. It's in some ways a throwaway detail, but it says that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, we know the story, right? So we know that the harvest leads to Boaz, which leads to a marriage, which leads to provision for a, for a widow and her, and her daughter-in-law. But it also leads to Israel's greatest king, David. That barley harvest, yeah, it's a practical detail, but it, is, it just explodes, in other words, with potential, with blessing. So Naomi, you know, she called herself bitter and empty. She referred to herself as bitter and empty. But if, if God was going to rename her, you know, according to his own plan and, and the way that he does sometimes, he would rename her perfect opportunity for my grace. That's how God would rename uh, uh, Naomi. Perfect opportunity for my grace to be displayed. So I think the takeaway for, for these verses is not to let our past define us. You know, we, we let things in the past, like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the events recorded in the scriptures, we have to let those things define us because they do define us. 
And we understand that our, our past influences us. It has a profound influence on us. But it doesn't define us in this kind of categorical, complete way. You have to see there, there are good things in your future. If you are in Christ, there are good things, not just eternity in the future. We know that, you know. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm going to die and it's going to be amazing. But between now and then, there are good things in your future. There are. I mean, for some of us, unspeakably hard things, too. So it's not just good things. But faith in future grace, faith in grace, faith in Christ, that is, that is a, you can, just, you can take it to the bank. There are good things in my future. It's not a name it and claim it kind of silly promise type thing. It's just a fact. That's what God's word allows us to believe and hold to. There are good things in our future. He is up to something. And the bleakest thing in your life right now, God would say, yeah, it is a perfect opportunity for my grace. Perfect. So that's Ruth 1. Disciplined by God's kindness, converted to God's kindness, trusting in God's future kindness. So the simple application at this point, you know, we're just getting started and it's a short series, four weeks. Um, for us, that's short. For you, that might be long. Uh, simple application would be to read the book of, of Ruth several times. It's one of the books where knowing the end from the beginning is very helpful. It helps you to not miss certain details, which are just so insightfully, uh, perfectly included. Then the second thing, we don't want to miss that this hesed, this kindness of God, especially this kindness of God through sacrifice, it just, it helps us to see Jesus, God's greater hesed, God's greater kindness, and the kindness that he's poured out on us through Jesus. So there's a great, great passage, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, this will be very familiar to us, but it highlights this, this, this kindness of God, this mercy of God. But God being rich in mercy, abundant, plentiful in mercy, this raining down upon us in his mercy. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Not a meager, not a Scrooge love. It is lavish, great love that he has poured out on us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What did his grace do? It made us alive. It raised us up. Not just in the here and now. It raised us up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. And that down payment, that down payment is a guarantee that in the ages to come, you know, you and I will be lifted up as trophies of his grace and kindness. So he did this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is a, an everlasting mercy, an everlasting love, an everlasting grace that he's poured out on us in Jesus Christ, the greater Hesed. And that, that promise, you, get, you add that to all the other promises and we, and we realize that that gives us ground, it gives us warrant to trust in future grace. 
There is grace coming. There's grace coming later today. There's grace coming tomorrow. There's grace coming next month and next year and next decade. There's grace coming. His future grace is coming. Charles Spurgeon has some great words on this uh, from his book, The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. It's a great title, Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. He says, the Lord may not give gold or Bitcoin, you know, whatever your preferred uh, money is. The Lord may not give gold, but he will give grace. He may not give gain, but he will give grace. He will certainly send us trial, but he will give grace in proportion thereto. We may be called to labor and to suffer, but with the call there will come all the grace required. He will give grace. He will give grace. So as we close out here, um, remember Mike's encouragement from Ron's prophetic word that we're gonna have a time of ministry here as we close. So during the last song, so Chris and the team are gonna come up in just a second. So during this last song, if, if you feel like uh, that, that, uh, that aspect of your past you can't get past, you want prayer for, then please come forward after, as, uh, as we sing this song and then as we pray after the last song. So this will be time of ministry for you. So um, the prayer team, others will be up here praying for whoever wants it. So trusting, in a sense, we're just trusting that this, this truth that we're, we're studying here, this future grace will be lived out in your life. That God will bring a fresh impartation of his grace to that area that you are having a hard time get pa- getting past in the present. So let's pray now that that, that would happen. Father, we thank you for, for that great promise that you will give grace. In our time of need, you will give grace. We don't know what it's gonna look like and it may not be in the form that we prefer, but you will give grace. And for every hardship that comes our way, there will be another dispensation of grace as well. There won't be a hardship greater than we can bear because there will be grace that goes along with that hardship. So Father, we pray for those who are working actually to overcome a sin or a temptation to sin in the past. We pray, Lord, for those, those besetting sin areas that you, Lord, would bring fresh grace. They've been forgiven. They've likely received some grace for some repentance so far, but we do pray that there would be a fresh impartation from you so that they would achieve new, new victory in those areas of sin in their lives. So Lord, come, minister to us, minister to your people, And for those unable to be here this morning who are watching online, we pray that you would minister grace to them in their time and place of need even now. Lord, let them experience that same impartation of grace even though they can't be with us. Lord, how good you are. We thank you that we can study this this idea of hesed, your goodness, your unexpected kindness. Lord, help us to go deeper in, in our awareness of what we've received from you and then to go deeper in our living it out before others, serving others, blessing others as a, as a lifestyle, Lord. Not just an occasional act we might do sometimes, but as a lifestyle of blessing others, even sacrificially, because of the hesed we've received from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.